Good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you at that uh, passage that Jack just read for us, uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Can I encourage you to have your Bible open? We're going to read it again, think about what it means and how it applies to us. Let's ask God for his help as we look at his word. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for giving us your word. Help us now to understand this prayer that Jesus taught and uh, help us to pray in line with your will. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My family and I recently watched a series on Netflix. Uh, it's called SWAT, um, set in Los Angeles. And uh, as the name would suggest, it follows the adventures of a, a SWAT team in the Los Angeles police force. Pretty much your basic testosterone dripping shoot 'em up cop show. Uh, but there are a few things that, uh, that we really like about this particular show. Uh, firstly, it's got, it's got quite a strong moral compass, a good sense of what is right and wrong. We also like the fact that it's got a very positive and helpful view about uh, masculinity, very positive masculinity. The other thing we like is that uh, one of the main characters in the show is a Catholic Christian. Uh, he's called Deacon, and he's presented surprisingly sympathetically. He's a very, very... Um, winsome, likeable character. In one of the episodes of SWAT, um, Deacon is, is helping a woman and uh, she asks him to pray for her. And what he does, he, he prays the Lord's Prayer out loud with, with this lady. And then the main character, a guy called Hondo, who makes no pretense to be a Christian, listens to the prayer and says, Amen, at the end of the prayer. It's actually quite a powerful moment and so rare to see something like this on modern TV. Most people know the Lord's Prayer, don't they? I've been to about half a dozen funerals this year, mostly attended by non-Christians. It's interesting, people don't really know how to sing anymore. Nowadays, funerals don't seem to have songs. People don't know how to sing hymns anymore. But still, many, many people know the Lord's Prayer. Today, in churches across the world... Millions of people will pray the Lord's, the Lord's Prayer, word for word. It, it, it has to be the most famous prayer ever prayed, doesn't it? But I wonder, I wonder how many people understand what it is that they're actually praying for when they pray the Lord's Prayer. It's very easy to let the words kind of fall off our lips, particularly when, when you say it word for word. But what do the words mean? What are you actually asking for when you pray the Lord's Prayer? All right, I'm going to give you 90 seconds to discuss it. Turn to each other, make sure nobody's sitting by themselves, someone's sitting by themselves, bring them into your group, turn to each other into small groups, three, four, five people, and see if you can summarise, here's the job, see if you can summarise the meaning of the Lord's Prayer in your own words in one sentence. You get it? In one sentence, in your own words, see if you can summarise the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. Okay, go, 90 seconds. How was that as an experience? It's a bit tricky, really, isn't it? Uh, there's a few strange words in there, hallowing and kingdoms and things like that. And, and to try to get an idea of what, what the prayer is saying, it's not all that easy, is it? Okay, well, I reckon the key to understanding the Lord's Prayer is found in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 36. So Ezekiel chapter 36 is written nearly 600 years before Jesus, and God is talking about how he sent Israel into exile. Um, Israel rebelled against God, they sinned against God, and God kicked them out of the promised land. You can see it in Ezekiel chapter 6 and verse 19 that's coming up for you there. 
God says, I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. Okay, God sent Israel into exile because of their sin. Problem was, though, Israel were known as God's people. The nations around all knew that this is the people who worship the Lord. And so the nations laughed at God. They thought, ha, some God, this Lord is, he can't even protect his own people. Our gods are obviously stronger than their gods. That's why they've been defeated. That's why they're in exile. God's name was profaned, he says, among the nations by Israel being in exile. And so, God says in Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to hallow my name. I'm going to show the holiness of my name. Verse 20. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. You see that? The nations around are saying God's not strong because Israel are in exile. I had concern for my holy name, verse 21, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will show the holiness of my great name. Literally, I will hallow my great name. I will hallow my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. God's name has been profaned by his people being in exile. And so God says he's going to hallow his name. How's he going to do it? Ezekiel 36, he explains it. He says, I'm going to bring the people back to the land, but it's going to be different this time. It's not going to be just Israel sinning in the promised land and making a mess and getting chucked out again. He says, I'm going to forgive them their sins. He talks about washing them clean with water, forgive them their sins. And he says, I'm going to transform them. He says, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in them so that they're not even tempted anymore, so that, so that, they, that, that, that they want to obey me and live for me. God says, I'm going to bring them back to the land Forgive them and change them so that they can live permanently in the promised land. Me, their God, they, my people. It's what comes to be known as the new covenant. Verse 24, verse 24, God says, For I will take you out of the nations, I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, forgiving them. And now notice the transformation. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You'll be my people and I will be your God. God promises that he will hallow his name by bringing in a new age. An age when his people come home, an age where they're forgiven, an age where they're transformed, an age when they receive God's Holy Spirit. And so Israel waited. And they waited. A hundred years or so later, they came back to the land. But these promises of Ezekiel 36 weren't really fulfilled. There was no transformation of the people they were still just as sinful as ever and you can see it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament 
There's still no new age, still no transformation by the Spirit, and so they kept on waiting. For more than 500 years, they waited. But then a stunning thing happened. A man called John the Baptist came onto the scene, and he said, the wait is over. He said, a man is coming after me who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. He'll bring in this new age. Jesus came and he claimed to be the one who was to come. He claimed to be the fulfilment of all these Old Testament hopes. And as the story has progressed, we see, we've seen how he's going to do it. He's going to go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of God's people so they can be forgiven. He's going to rise again from the dead and pour out God's spirit so his people can be transformed. And so... Jesus has resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. That's where we are in the story of Luke. And it brings us to Luke chapter 11. A section starts off with Jesus in prayer. Seems Jesus was often praying. And uh, one of his disciples asks him about it. He says, well, could you teach us how to pray? Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples, as John the Baptist. And in reply, Jesus gives them the famous Lord's Prayer. Now, first thing to notice about this prayer, Jesus tells the disciples how to address God. He says, address God as Father. Now, I often uh, hear people address uh, Jesus when they pray. They say, dear Lord Jesus, or they say, Lord, or something like that. It's not strictly heretical. Jesus is God. You can pray to him. It does happen in the Bible. But it's not, it's not the biblical pattern for prayer. It's not, it's not the way that um, New Testament people pray, generally speaking. And it's not what Jesus teaches here. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, address God as Father. Verse 2, he said to them, Verse 2, when you pray, say, Father. And then Jesus gives a series of requests. Now, the first request is this hallowing of God's name. Still in verse 2, hallowed be your name. There's a story of a little girl who came home from Sunday school one day, um, came home and her mother said to her, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And she said, today we found out what God's name is. And mum said, really? What's that? The little girl said, yes, his name is Harold. <laughs> and mum said, where, where did you hear that? <laughs> and she said, it was in our prayers. The teacher said, our father, Harold, be your name. <laughs> um, Jesus didn't say, Harold, be your name. In case you were confused about it, he said, hallowed be your name. And can you see, it's straight out of Ezekiel chapter 36. Straight out of Ezekiel 36, it is a call for God to keep his promise, to to gain praise among the people by bringing his people home, by bringing in the new age of salvation, by forgiving his people, transforming them by the Spirit so they can be his people forever. Uh, Second request, second request is quite similar. Um, It's asking God that his kingdom will come. Uh, That happens now as people 
submit themselves to Jesus as king, but, but ultimately this is a prayer for the consummation of Jesus' kingdom. It's a prayer that, that God will bring on the day when Jesus returns and when every knee in heaven and on earth bows to him and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. It's a prayer for the day when all authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus and everyone has to acknowledge it. When Jesus is raised to the right hand of God, when he's installed as the king of the world and, and when he pours out the Holy Spirit and brings in the new age. Still in verse 2, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. There's some debate about what the next request means. Jesus literally says this. He says, Our bread of the coming day give to us each day, day by day, every day, something like that. Our bread of the coming day give to us each day. What is this bread of the coming day? Uh, most people, most commentators nowadays seem to think that it refers to the food that we eat, that we get food each day. And so it's asking God to provide our food, our daily bread, as the NIV translates it. And of course, God provides us with everything, and it's not a wrong prayer to pray that at all. But in the early church, most people thought that Jesus was using the term metaphorically. They thought to, that to ask for the bread of the coming day was to ask God to give us the good things of the new age, when God hallows his name and his kingdom comes. Uh, what are those good things of the coming age? Well, it's there in Ezekiel 36, and it's what Jesus goes on to say. The good things of the coming age that you could receive now are to have your sins forgiven, washed clean from your impurity and your idols, like it says in Ezekiel 36. And, and, and the, the other thing, the other thing that... The other part of the new age that you could receive today is to receive God's Holy Spirit and to be transformed so that you're not tempted to sin, to keep you away from temptation. Now, as I say, most people don't hold to that interpretation anymore. And the NIV certainly doesn't, doesn't translate it that way. You can see it. The NIV says, verse 3 there, give us each day our daily bread. But I think the early church was right on this. I think the NIV is wrong. Um, I think a better translation is something like, give us each day the bread of the coming age. Which, if I'm right, then leads directly into the next request. The next request, asking God to forgive us our sins. What are our sins? Well, it's all the ways that we fail to love God and our neighbour. We saw that last week, didn't we? Um, it's... it's it, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our inactions, all the ways that we fail to love God and our neighbour. Although notice this, um, in asking for forgiveness here, there's a sort of a caveat with it, isn't there, in verse 4. I'm not going to talk about this a lot now, we'll talk about it more in a couple of weeks. Just note though, you want to ask God for forgiveness, we need to be willing to forgive other people, verse 4. Forgive us our sins, so give us the bread of the coming age, that is, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And then in the final request, we ask God to keep us away from temptation, so we don't even fall into sin in the first place. So we're looking for this transformed heart that, that, that wants to love and obey God so that our, our place in God's coming kingdom is not endangered. Still in verse 4. And lead us not into temptation. 
Uh, many years ago when my wife Carmeline and I were living in Newtown, we were studying at Moore College, and um, we, we heard a story about a little boy who lived in a neighbouring suburb. Uh, the suburb just near Newtown is called Tempe, and uh, his parents, who were, um, uh, the, the, whenever they took this child near to the railway station, he used to get really scared. And eventually they asked him, what, what's going on? What, 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 what's, so, what's wrong with this railway station? And he said, well, when we pray to God, we say, lead us not into Tempe Station. <laughs> Jesus wasn't talking about trains here. He's talking about temptation. Asking God to transform us by his spirit so we avoid sin now. And so ultimately we can live as God's people without sin forever in, in, in the promised land. Uh, just one other thing to notice about this prayer. I think this is really important. Notice that it's all in the plural. Did you notice that? It's not give me the bread of the coming day. It's not forgive me my sins. It's not keep me from temptation. No, no, in each request it's, can you see, it's us, plural. This, this is, Jesus wants us to pray these things for ourselves but also for each other. For ourselves, but also for our families, also for our church, also for our world. All right. Okay, I'm going to give you another 90 seconds to think about this. Uh, turn to the people around you again and see if you want to change your previous answer in any ways. Okay? Uh, see if you want to change your previous answer. Have another go. See if you can give the meaning of the Lord's Prayer in one sentence in your own words. Okay? 90 seconds. Let's go. How'd it go? Did you make any changes in your thinking? Um, I think particularly with that, if you get that verse and, and it means the bread of the coming age, the, the prayer all flows into one, isn't it? Otherwise it's kind of, you know, bring on heaven and feed us and let us be part of heaven. It's sort of, I, I think it, it makes much more sense in the flow that way. Here's my attempt. Here's what I think the prayer means. Uh, Jesus wants us to pray this. Um, bring on heaven and let us be part of it now and forever. Bring on the new age, bring on the new heaven and new earth. Let us be part of it by your spirit now and forever. Bring on heaven, let us be part of it. Something like that. Maybe you've come up with something better. Okay. Uh, next section, Jesus goes on to tell the disciples that God will definitely answer the Lord's Prayer. No doubt about it. And Jesus uses two illustrations. A bit of background is going to help us understand the first illustration. In that culture... It was the community's responsibility to give hospitality to visitors. We didn't really have, I mean, they did, but not in the same way, kind of hotels and motels, that sort of thing like we do today. So if someone came, it was the community's responsibility to offer good hospitality. So Jesus sets up a scenario. A friend arrives in the middle of the night. You're willing to do your part. You're willing to open your home and offer hospitality. But there's a problem. You don't have any bread to feed this visitor. So you boldly go to, to another friend, even though it's the middle of the night, and you ask him to do his part for the community in welcoming this visitor, and you ask them for bread. Now, in that culture, if you've asked, this second friend has no choice. If he doesn't get up and give you the bread, it's a disgrace to him, and he's bringing disgrace to the whole community because the visitor's not been shown hospitality. In Jesus' story, for a moment, it looks like the man is going to defy all cultural expectations. Looks like he's going to do the unthinkable. He's going to refuse to help. But he can't. 
Even if he won't get up because you're his friend, he has to get up because you've asked him. You've boldly asked him, he has to do it. The point is this, the man doesn't have a choice. Whether he likes it or not, he has to do what his neighbour says. In the same way, God has promised to bring in the new age and give the Holy Spirit. He's staked the honour of his name on it. And so he will do it. He will hallow his name. He will bring his kingdom. He will forgive and transform his people by God's spirit. It's like God has given himself no choice because he's promised. Verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me. I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And so Jesus gives the application. Be bold. Be bold in praying the Lord's Prayer. Boldly ask God, hallow your name, bring on heaven, give us a place in it, because he'll do it. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. That was illustration number one. God's promised, and so he'll do it. Second illustration, Jesus compares God to human fathers. Uh, The idea is God is a better father, a kinder father. um, and, And Jesus says even human fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. And so God is sure to answer when we pray the Lord's Prayer. And notice how he will answer there in verse 13. He'll answer in terms of Ezekiel 36. He will give his Holy Spirit. He'll bring on the new age, allow us a place in his eternal kingdom. Verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. All right, can you see what's here in Luke chapter 11 then? Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer and then two illustrations to show that God will definitely answer the Lord's Prayer. Friends, the fact is, as we see in the rest of Luke's Gospel and also in the book of Acts, God kept his promise. God did answer the Lord's Prayer. Jesus faithfully went to the cross, died for our sins. God raised him from the dead, seated him his own right hand, gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. God's kingdom did come and exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus received the Holy Spirit, poured him out onto the world. And so today, you can receive the blessings of the coming age. Today, if you call on Jesus, as we did earlier in our service, you can have your sins forgiven. 
Today, if you call on Jesus, you can receive the Holy Spirit who will change you. God has kept his promise. The Lord's prayer is answered. But we're not in heaven yet, are we? I mean, every knee hasn't bowed to King Jesus yet. We're not completely transformed yet by the Spirit. We're not in heaven yet. We do taste now the blessings of the coming age. But there's a sense in which we've only got that foretaste. Even though the new age exists, it hasn't been fully consummated, to to use the theological term. We're not in heaven yet. And so praying the Lord's Prayer, it's a little bit like this. Imagine um, D-Day has just passed. This is World War II. D-Day has just passed. You're standing on the shores of France and you're asking God to end the Second World War. Okay, D-Day has passed. You know, Eastern Front, Western Front, the, 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 the decisive battles have already been won. Okay, the, the, the war is over in one sense, but yet the war isn't over in another sense. That, that's what praying the Lord's Prayer is like today. There's a sense in which it's been answered, but there's also a sense in which we're not in heaven yet. And so it is right and good that we thank God for forgiving us and forgiving us his spirit, but also it's right and good that we should ask God that he brings these things to a conclusion, that he finally makes us perfect, that he brings, sends Jesus back. It's right for us then to keep praying the Lord's Prayer. Which brings us very, very quickly to application. Here, I think, is an application of the passage. We should pray the Lord's Prayer. Like, like Deacon does in SWAT. We should pray the Lord's Prayer. Even if we don't say the exact words, we should keep praying the content of the prayer. Keep asking God, bring on heaven and allow us to be part of it. That should be the consistent kind of focus on our prayers, that Jesus will return, that we'll be part of his kingdom now and forever. I don't know about you, but I often find that my prayers become very kind of earth-focused. You know, Heavenly Father, please heal my sore back. Heavenly Father, please help my kids do a good job in their exam. Do you find yourself, your prayers becoming like that? It's just sort of immediate needs, that kind of stuff. It's easy to get distracted. It's fine. Look, it's fine to pray for all those things. The Bible says, don't be anxious about anything. In everything, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God with thanksgiving. It's good and right that we should pray for everything. But friends, we mustn't lose sight of this prayer. We mustn't lose the focus of our prayers. We need to keep our prayers focused on God's kingdom coming and on us and our family and our church and our friends and the world being part of that kingdom. Why should we keep our focus in this way? Well, because that's what Jesus says to pray. Here in Luke chapter 11, the disciples ask him, what should we pray? He says, this is what you should pray. So friends, um, let's finish by praying the Lord's Prayer. Um, I've put my slightly changed version up here. You can pray for daily bread if you want to, um, but I think it's the bread of the coming age. So let's pray together. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day the bread of the coming age. Forgive us our sins. 
For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation.'" 